This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. How high can U.S. rates go? Hi, everyone. Welcome to this Friday extended Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Dominique Dwarf-Fakor, Senior Researcher at MacroHive.com. Hi, Dominique. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Maggie. Thank you so much for having me. So it's it's great to sort of catch up on this Friday and wrap up what has been sort of a, an interesting week. We had We saw today U.S. stocks rallied to close off the week as the 10-year yield retreated just a little bit below 4%. But it came against a backdrop of conflicting signals from Fed officials once again. What's your sense of where we are when it comes to monetary policy? Okay, we are at a juncture where the data is basically uh, pushing in the direction of the hopes uh, who are in the minority uh, in the committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've seen some, you know, very strong uh, prints with inflation, uh, revision, data revisions, uh, and there is no question that the U.S. economy is not slowing. It's actually picking up pace, uh, and we are seeing everywhere that the monetary tightening we've had so far is not really uh, biting, so the Fed has to reconsider and what's interesting is that this week we've had a, a dove like Bostic, for instance, basically talk about uh, uh, going above the end uh, 2023 Fed funds uh, that was penciled in the December uh, SCP. Uh, you know, this, this uh, little forecast that the Fed produces four times a year. So even the doves have to admit that uh, they're wrong and the Fed is going to have to hike uh, more than they expected. So how much more work do you think they have to do? So for the past year or so, I've had this uh, view based on a very simple version of the Taylor rule, you know, a rule that basically uh, expresses is the level of interest rate that is needed to stabilize the economy uh, as a function of the deviation uh, of unemployment and inflation from their long-term levels. So my super simple, simplistic estimate of the Taylor rule has been around 8%. And, you know, I always joke that models should be taken seriously, but not literally. Uh, so I'm not going to bet my life that we will hit 8% on the dot. But certainly we have to be uh, much higher than uh, where we are now. 
Yeah. And when you hear 8%, I mean, my jaw drops, right? Because we are, that that is not really not in anybody's radar. So even if you're saying we don't get all the way there, that's still an indication of the fact that you think there's way more to go than's priced into the market. Definitely. Uh, and uh, actually, I have to say, when I made that um, call uh, last uh, spring, uh, people did not take me very seriously. Uh, but the the market has moved my way. The data has moved my my way. And if you look at how the market is repricing the Fed, they are clearly expecting um, an increase uh, in the terminal Fed funds rate in the Fed own forecast. And they are also pricing, I think, about maybe 20% chance of a 50 basis point uh, hike uh, in March. Um, so I would argue that we are in a situation where um, the, I mean, inflation is not slowing. Uh, the Fed keeps expecting this disinflation to happen. It's not happening. Mm -hmm. And every meeting, you know, they keep uh, saying that, oh, maybe they will not stop as soon as they had expected. They will need to do a little more and a little more. And eventually that adds up, I think, you know, without a major inflation shock which I wouldn't rule out. We can talk about this a bit more. But even in the absence of a major inflation shock, there is a good chance that uh, the Fed funds will end the year around 6%. Oof. I mean, that's that that that's painful for a lot. And you, caught, you already caught some of our viewers' attention with 8% um, and some funny comments to follow from that. So William asking, and this is, I think it's, Everyone kind of commenting, it's an interesting week, right? Like when you're looking at what's going on, I mean, big rally in stocks today. Okay, I don't know what the, I, I did not get a chance to check volume. And, you know, this is a short-term move. One day does not make a trend, but it's interesting coming against the data. And William asking, why did the back end of treasuries drop back down into the 3%? Uh, 30-year is, about again, below 4%. We saw that even the 10-year go below 4% with strong ISM services data. Do, do, what happened today that you think was driving the markets when you're looking at this potential for much higher rates? Can you square what's going on in the short term? Sure. I mean, well, to the extent that it's possible, as you said, it's a short term uh, market move. I mean, it could very well be that people thought the ISM would be even worse. Uh, it could be positioning. I mean, this is a very short term uh, market move. Um, but if you think big picture of where we are likely to be a couple of months, three months down the road, um, I'm still feeling comfortable with my views that, uh, you know, the short end of the curve will uh, reprice higher, mm -hmm. uh, have a deeper inversion. In fact, my close to 8% call goes with an inversion, so a difference between two years and 10 years, 10 year yields of about 200 basis points because uh, this is what we had in the in the 70s, uh, which uh, is the last time the Fed was so far uh, behind the curve. So, you know, for sure, very small uh, market movements uh, do not necessarily fit with the big picture, but over the longer run, you know, I, my view on rate is not great for equities, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, that might be the understatement of the conversation we have today. And that when I see this action today, I think it's just, 
you know, maybe means that the, the market's in total denial. Just a reminder, everyone, if you have a question for Dominique, just drop it in the chat or tweet us at Real Vision. You know, as we're talking about this, Dominique, um, all, all week long, we've been asking, we've got the big non-farm payroll number next Friday. So we know there's going to be another you know, a batch of information coming in on February because you, we, we saw what happened in January. So as we've been kind of waiting for that and anticipating it and getting little drips this week, we've been asking all of our guests on the daily briefing uh, about the Fed and whether the Fed's framework is flawed. Here's what they had to say. Let's have them listen to this. I, I don't think they have a framework. So the answer is no. Um, I think, you know, they're, they're like riding that they're flying a plane where the the instruments don't work anymore they previously relied on their instruments to tell them where they were going to land but the instruments don't work anymore and now they're just you know trying to use their their own vision through through a field of fog and you know when when this happens um you know sometimes you you might see things too late and so you know, they, they might not see where they're supposed to land until it's too late. And that's the kind of thing that could potentially cause a hard landing um, later this year. They've got to raise rates and they're trying to do it without tanking the stock market. And so far that's working. Mm -hmm. And so how do they do that? They get people to think that they're going to tank the stock market for a couple of months and let them really believe that and let them position themselves that way. And then this way, when something comes out and it's not the worst possible outcome, Next thing you know, stocks are off the bottom, but nothing changed in the economy, right? So they do at some level, they do a pretty good job of managing things. And I don't write anybody off for dead when they control money supply, you know? So if they control money supply, they control a whole lot of what's going on in the financial plumbing. And so while I think it may be challenging for them to deal with the inflation that the administration is no undoubtedly causing, you know, they're just forced to pick up the pieces. Because raw materials are not something that you can just magically create. The earth creates them. Labor has to retrieve them. They have to be delivered. Um, and there are so many obstacles that can get in the way of those simple three steps. And I don't see any reason why at this point we've gone through that cycle. If anything, I think we've been in more of a period of denial about what actually has happened and what can continue to happen with these very essential raw materials is you have to understand that even if the Federal Reserve decides to go a half a percent higher or a quarter percent higher, they get to 6% by the end of the year, this may not necessarily have anything to do with the powers of play that are driving these more material prices higher unless they want to get to a point where they crush economies globally. Uh, in the 70s, there was a general sense from most policymakers that fiscal spending creates inflation. Today, I'm not sure that's the case. And so, uh, and knowing that the agenda is getting larger and larger, well, there's a green revolution, we gotta go green. Uh, we gotta come back and bring things on shore. We can't have this, this dependency on the Chinese economy anymore or Taiwan manufacturing has to go back to the US. Well, there's a peak inequality issue now too. Well, uh, how do we do that? Well, there's a, a, a social uh, net that we, we gotta build. So we gotta provide capital for most people. There's some people mm. that don't have jobs and they have, uh, so they provide some sort of uh, social program for those guys. And so, you know, those things in collection combined are all uh, having an impact on fiscal spending that is likely to stay high for 
uh, for longer. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again. March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holds barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together. So it's so interesting, Dominique, to sort of hear that all together. When I listen to it, it seems like all of them in some way are saying that a lot of the inflation issue is out of, actually out of the Fed's control. I mean, some of it's fiscal, some of it's underinvestment in natural resources, throw in deglobalization and some of the issues. Can monetary policy alone deal with the inflation threat that we're facing? So... Ideally, the responsibility should be uh, with uh, both Congress and fiscal policy and with monetary policy. So in that sense, what we have is a very dysfunctional arrangement, which mm -hmm. reflects, you know, it's a legacy in a way from monetarism. The idea that uh, inflation is a monetary phenomenon, so the institutions that uh, controls money is the Fed and therefore the Fed is the only one the only institution in charge, which doesn't make much sense. But uh, in terms of uh, control, I still think, you know, the Fed has a role to play in the sense that it, what we've gone through is a change uh, in supply, a negative supply shock. And to the extent that this shock, supply shock is not going to reverse uh, anytime soon. So, okay, supply chains are a little better, but things like deglobalization uh, or the uh, decline in labor participation. These are long-term supply side issues that basically reduce the economy uh, productive capacity. And the job of the Fed to stabilize inflation is to reduce demand and bring it in line with this reduced supply. But, you know, whether it's done by the Fed and Congress or the Fed alone, that is the responsibility of the policymakers. Yeah. If so, if, and, and should we assume that if the Fed has to go it alone and there's not cooperation or coordination with Congress, it's going to make their job harder? They're going to have to do all the heavy lifting. Oh, totally. Uh, absolutely. And in fact, if you look at fiscal policy, uh, we had a big decrease in the deficit last fiscal year that ended last se September, of course, because we had an absolutely crazy increase the year before due to the pandemic policies. Uh, but this year, the deficit is widening again, which is mm -hmm. crazy because unemployment is at a 50-year low. So when you have that much resource pressure in the economy, you need tighter, not looser, um, uh, fiscal policy. So this is actually making the job of the Fed that much harder. Mm. So it's interesting. We had 
The Atlanta Fed President Bostic saying that he's comfortable 25 basis point rate hikes. That was late in the day yesterday, and that helped the tone. Then Fed Governor Waller came out, sending more hawkish, talking about the tight labor market. And you you sort of see the market ping-ponging on these comments as they come out. Do you think that there is really true disagreement about among Fed officials, or is this an intentional effort to manage expectations, kind of like good cop, bad cop? Um, I don't think they are doing it on purpose because uh, President Bostick is in Atlanta, uh, Governor Waller is in DC. I don't think they are coordinating, but I think they were not as far apart as the market thinks because uh, what President Bostick said was I would be comfortable uh, with ending the hikes in early or late summer, meaning he wants to hike in March, in May, in June and possibly in July. He wants to hike, to, he presumably he wants to hike 25 basis points uh, each time. But still, you know, this is uh, four more hikes against the t- uh, two more relative uh, to the, uh, the December uh, SCP. So it's interesting that actually even a dove like President Bostic agrees that the Fed will need to do more than what it thought in uh, in December. Mm. Is, do you think the market is accurately priced for the reality of the challenge in front of the Fed? No. Uh, I mean, the, the market is definitely not pricing the six, 6%. Six 6% percent at the end of the year is my benign scenario. But, you know, China is reopening. If we have, if that leads to an increase in oil prices, say we go back to $120 a barrel, which is not impossible also, uh, you know, so far the, the sanctions that have been put on Russia have not really prevented it from exporting oil. It's been exporting to third country. The, the US and the G7 have not put much pressure on these countries. But as the war goes on, Uh, there will be more pressure to do more on sanctions. So if we have an oil price shock when unemployment is at its lowest level in 50 years, it's going to be devastating for inflation and for the US economy. And that's where, you know, my my story about the 8% uh, comes into play uh, Mm. much sooner than in my benign case where we have uh, no major inflation shock. Yeah, that every time you say that 8%, it's 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 really a harsh reality to even think about that. So you, you said there's pain for the U.S. economy. Is a recession inevitable for the U.S. economy? And if so, what's your thoughts on timing and how severe? Because it doesn't seem like we've seen much impact from all of the aggressive rate hikes that we've seen so far from the Fed. I agree completely with you, Maggie. Uh, there has been very limited impact. And uh, you know, the U.S. is uh, humming along very nicely. And unfortunately, that's what is preventing inflation from coming up. And so the Fed is going to have to apply the brakes uh, in a much, much more forceful manner. And that's when we, we will get the recession. So to me, it is a much more a 2024, maybe, and 2023 story. But right now, I am definitely not seeing any signs that we are headed for a recession. Mm. Is it is it that there the lag just hasn't kicked in, or is it just that 
the economy stronger than anyone thought. Do we do we know what's happening? Why we haven't seen an impact? Because people are puzzled. I mean, it's one thing to see an absolute recession, but it, you would you would think that you would start to see things start to change. And it it, it and if anything, we're seeing a reacceleration on a lot of fronts. Uh, totally. No, I think there are structural reasons that have made the U.S. economy more or less immune to monetary policy tightening. So let me give you a few. Uh, so, for instance, super strong uh, consumer balance sheets. Why? Because we had a crisis. Uh, when was that? Uh, 15, 15 years ago? 14 years ago? And people have been deleveraging mm -hmm. ever since. So they're able to take on more debt. Uh, they're able to not sell their homes. I mean, if you look at residential real estate prices, uh, I don't know what it looks like in New York, but let me tell you in LA, uh, it's not slowing much. Why? Because people have the capacity to actually, uh, instead of listing their houses, just put it out on the market for, for, for rental. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, you've had a de decline in supply uh, and prices are stabilizing. I mean, we, 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 we saw that last week. And so that's one, one reason is a consumer super strong balance sheet. Then the U.S., you know, has a very peculiar or very unique financial market. So, for instance, when we buy our houses, uh, we buy we buy them on, with 30-year fixed mortgage. I think mm -hmm. we are the only country uh, in the G10 that, that does that. So when mortgage rates go up, uh, nothing happens to people who already have a house. Yeah, it's more expensive uh, to buy a new house, but if you have one, you're fine. And by contrast, in the in the UK, for instance, when mortgage rates go up, people have to pay more uh, in interest uh, every month, and that decreases uh, their consumption. And then we have a series of other factors, like for instance this. Uh, fiscal policy I was talking about, but also the fact that we've started a uh, transition uh, towards in, uh, green energy. Uh, we have to spend on climate mitigation. We are also trying to reshore. Uh, so the US government is giving money to uh, support greater investments uh, onshore. And that's, you know, that's also uh, not impacted by monetary policy and giving resiliency to the economy. So to me, it's not about lags. It's just that the Fed needs to be much more forceful. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. Yeah, and I love that's why I love Tavi's uh, explanation about all the forces that are 
pushing in the other direction. So it's kind of counteracting what the Fed's doing. And all of them, you or some of them, you may agree with in their own pillar, but collectively it's this sort of surge that's making it really difficult for the Fed and, and kind of countering any policy they have. So obviously there are massive implications to all this, massive implications for 8%. We have a lot of good questions coming in on the global part of it, which we'll get to uh, in, a, in a few moments. But I, I want to ask, uh, so let's sort of take a step back and start with U.S. equities. Um, based on what you're saying, uh, you mentioned sort of broadly not good for U.S. equities. I mean, what is your forecast, given the fact that the Fed's going to have to do a lot more and and it doesn't seem to be priced in at all? I mean, we saw this rally today. What are you expecting for U.S. equities? Well, you know, I'm more of a fixed income person, but based on, uh, you know, my expectations that uh, long-term yields are like the 10-year is probably going to end the year around. 5%, but maybe between 45 to 5%. Uh, that's not great from equity. I mean, it suggests substantial downside from uh, from where we are. Uh, and the equity market will get uh, hit uh, twice. Not only will yields uh, go up, but the Fed is going to uh, lower inflation by bringing about a recession. So that's not great mm -hmm. either. No, it's not. Do you think the Fed is going to continue to use interest rate policy, or could we see, see them start to do something more on the QT side of things, on the balance sheet side of things? On the QT side of things, they are a bit constrained because right now they are in a situation where they are losing money because they pay more in interest rate to banks on the reserves that the banks uh, keep at the Fed then the Fed is getting on its securities portfolio. So it's going to be a little controversial, uh, especially the hundreds of billions that will in the end have to be paid to banks under the, the, op the operational framework the, the Fed has. Um, and if they want to increase the pace of QT, uh, they are going to have to do outright sales, especially of MBS, because mm -hmm. what they have on their balance sheets are very long dated uh, securities. Uh, and as you know, MBS are basically mortgage loans packaged together. Uh, and in the US, we have the option of prepaying, uh, mm -hmm. which means that in reality, the maturities of MBS end up being much shorter uh, ex post than uh, when they are first issued. But what is going on is that rates are so high that people are not refinancing uh, mm -hmm. because most, most uh, borrowers are very happily, you know, looking at interest rates that are below current rates. So it means that if the Fed wants to get rid of its MBS portfolio, it's going to have to make outright sales. And if it, sell, if it sells those, those MBS, it's going to make losses. Why? Because when you think about it, QE is a bond uh, investment scheme based on buying high, buying at a high price and selling at a low price. Mm -hmm. So with the backdrop of the Fed already losing money, simply uh, because of uh, bad, uh, bad carry, with its existing portfolio of securities, if it sells, it's going to have to book 
uh, losses, and I think this would be very, very controversial uh, politically. Even yeah. though, in theory, there is nothing that prevents the Fed from operating with a you know, negative equity. In practice, I think it would be very politically difficult. Mm, yeah, good point. And it's p- politically difficult already for Federal Reserve officials who can't seem to make anyone happy. So that's going to the only I mean, you're, they're really in a tough spot. So, uh, again, I, I'm, I'm really fixed on this idea that we rates may go much higher than anyone. If you're right or even close to being right, Dominique, much higher than anyone anticipates. There are huge implications for that. And the global picture is super complicated. So I, I do want to talk about all of that and what to do in the face of that. We're almost toward the end of the half hour though. So we're gonna continue the conversation on the Real Vision platform. We would love for all of you to join us. You know what to do, hit the QR code and become a Real Vision member to do that. Also really important programming notes, starting next Monday, March 6th. If you feel scared now, we're conscious of that. So we have an important two-part series called How to Unfuck Your Future, courtesy of Raoul himself, designed to help you get where you want to go in the future. In the first week, we're going to be exploring all the ways in which we're all feeling stressed out, from debt to demographics to monetary policy, geopolitics. Uh, But the second week, we're going to talk about what to do with all that, solutions or opportunities um, with a lineup of experts. So we're super excited about it. Raul's going to kick it all off on Monday. We're going to have some cool live events and AMAs all around that. So you're going to want to pay attention. Here's a little bit more on that. If we want to change the outcomes for this really screwed up world, where our wages don't go up, where we're being replaced by technology, where governments are massively in debt and we foot the bill via taxes, where we see debasement of assets so we can't afford as many assets as we like. So the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. If we don't like to see the rise of populism based on this broken society because the promises of the future have been broken, let's make our promises to our future selves come right. And that's by unfucking your future. Some of this is going to really f*** your future in 20 or 30 years' time. But we've got time to figure that out because it's unstoppable. Super excited about that. We're catching up with some great people. I can't wait for you to see it. Okay, if you're joining us, fantastic. If you are not, have a wonderful weekend and we'll see you back here on Monday for the beginning of the series and, of course, the daily briefing. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.